So we've been going through journeys into God's Word and how to interpret the Bible in a way that is consistent with the Bible. Right? We don't have to come up with our own principles. Uh, scripture has already its own way of, of dealing with things. So um, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, beautiful morning. Um, we get to enjoy the weather and um, your creation, Lord, but even more than the skies declaring your glory, your word declares who you are and the perfection of who you are and the wisdom that there is in you. And Father, we're so encouraged by the uh, ability to study it, uh, to even rely in the insights and comments of others that have gone before us to study and interpret difficult texts. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we look at this uh, new topic today. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in chapter 6. Chapter 6, that is page... So I might be reading some parts of the book, so if you have there, you want to follow along. Um, I, may not, I might skip some parts, so I do encourage you, when you have a chance at home, to read do the, the reading, the chapter. Um, and if not, um, you're going to miss some really cool things. All right. Um, we all had the experience when our words, or we witnessed someone else's words, being taken out of context. And we can say that's pretty frustrating, isn't it? I recall a friend of mine who was a missionary, a missionary kid in Brazil, and um, a girl approached him, and he was kind of high school age, I think, and she said, uh, can we pray together? And he said, yes. Um, eventually, he, uh, my friend moved to L.A. for the master's college to you know, university, and this girl was heartbroken. Because in the Brazilian culture, for a girl or a guy to ask to pray with a girl, there is an expectation, a romantic expectation. There is a commitment. So praying with someone does not did not necessarily mean just praying for them or praying with them. It, is, it meant something else. So had he known the cultural context of my hometown, he probably wouldn't have fallen on that. I, I do remember later... I got to uh, talk to this girl, and she's saying, yeah, I was just so sad that we were dating, and he left and didn't give any explanation. I'm like, well, I don't think you guys were dating, but, <laughs> you know. Um, but you get my drift here on uh, being able to understand words in, it, in their contexts, right? As our textbook states on page 63, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, context is crucial. In fact, we would go so far as to say that the most important principle in biblical interpretation is that context determines the meaning of the passage. When we ignore the context, we can twist the scriptures and prove almost anything. 
have you had a conversation with someone and they have a, an argument that is very wrong, <laughs> but they're trying to substantiate that with scripture? It is, it is hard. So we're going to watch a, a little video here. It will be kind of like a recap of our historical context and then the other uh, focus that we're going to have on this chapter on literary context. So I just thought it was a, a quick way of, of uh, reviewing here the truths that we've been learning. Um, and just a, a quick observation there on what they say, what he said about us trying to set aside our understanding, our pre-understanding of the 21st century when we read the pages of the Bible. And um, to an extent, uh, and why do I say this? Because we all bring some pre-understanding, and we're going to have a chapter in a book that will talk about that, and how can we keep ourselves from going too far in bringing our pre-understanding into the Bible. So, um, but one way or another, you will bring your own insight, because you're a human being that uses a language that heard certain words before, so you might, you know, as you read, you will have an understanding of those as well. All right, so... We've seen last week, um, we kind of closed up, we had two classes on the historical context where we addressed the historical and cultural um, and sociopolitical geographical background of the Bible. And then this week we are focusing on the literary context that relates particularly to, for one of them is the uh, literary genre of each book and the surrounding context. So this is basically our topic for today. What is then literary genre? So there, we start on page 63. You have a definition there, what it means. Um, it's on page 65. So of every passage of scripture, we must notice the form it takes. What does that mean? Before we look to its content, what did it mean then? The word genre is a French word meaning form or kind. So when applied to biblical interpretation, the expression literary genre simply refers to the different categories or types of literature found in the Bible. So um, this is not a, a, a modern or new way of interpreting the Bible. Uh, I think people have systematized the understanding of these different genres um, better more recently, but that doesn't mean that you know our our fellow believers from ages past didn't take into consideration. They did. Now, I do think that um, scholarship and some um, theologians have gone too far, where. You know, we do see the differences between a narrative, between law, literature, and poetry, but sometimes they want to read narrative as if they're poetry. So, for instance, one of the, one of the things that you might hear in your lifetime is uh, the account of Genesis chapter 1 through 3, the creation of man. They might say, oh, that, that was not a historical event, that's just poetry, it was not written in the form of poetry. It was written in a, in a prose form, in a narrative form. So in the Old Testament, we will encounter 
narrative, law, poetry, prophecy, and wisdom literature, such as Proverbs. The New Testament forms includes uh, gospel or history, the letter, uh, it's most of the books of the New Testament are letters, and apocalyptic literature, which is uh, the book of Revelation. Both the Old and New Testaments feature a number of subgenres, so little things that are within that category. For instance, parables that you would hear in a narrative, or riddles, or sermons. I will read through Acts, the, it's a book on narrative, but every once in a while you will have a sermon being preached by Paul or a sermon being preached by Peter. So next year, in the spring, I plan to discuss all these major literary genres in our class. So we're going to go over through law and how to interpret law, specific things for each one of those, these genres. So for now, we will settle for why we need to recognize the literary genre to read a passage in its context. Uh, the metaphor, and I think this story is related here, uh, in your book, the metaphor that many linguists use to describe literary genre is that of a game. Now, you can think of each genre as a different kind of game, complete with its own sets of rules. This insightful analogy shows us how we as readers have to play by the rules when recognizing that specific literary genre. So he uses a quote here from Robert Stein, and he says, think for a moment of a European soccer fan attending his first American football and basketball games. When I remember as a Brazilian, you know, growing up, foot, football was football, something that you, pay, you played with your foot. And American football is something totally different, and I could not apply the same rules of soccer to football. In football, the offensive and the defensive players can use their hands to push their opponents. In basketball and soccer, they cannot. In soccer, the reverse is true. In football, everyone can hold the ball with his hands, but only one person gets to kick it. In soccer, everyone can kick the ball, but only one person gets to hold it. Unless we understand the rules under which the game is played, what is taking place is bound to be confusing. In a similar way, there are different game rules involved in the interpretation of different kinds of biblical literature. The author has played his game, that is, has sought to convey his meaning under the rules covering the particular literary form that he has used. So unless we know those rules, we'll almost certainly misinterpret its meaning. So for communication to occur, the reader must, must be on the same page as the author in terms of genre. But how can we clarify the meaning of the ancient authors when they're not around to fill in our questions? Why, how how do we, can we determine that? Well, the answer is literary genre. The author puts in this way, what writing pulls us under, author, context, text, reader, genre, joins us together with the author. So even though the author and the reader cannot have a face-to-face -face conversation, it, it would be great sometimes to, to ask Paul, what do you mean by this? <laughs> or 
uh, some of the prophets, I mean, you read Zechariah, and it's like, can you please <laughs> make it clearer? Um, well, when we look that, at that kind of style of prophecy, we see the unique features and how to interpret them. And this way, literary genre acts as a kind of covenant of communication. And this is a, an expression that our textbook uses, um, and he describes as a fixed agreement between the author and the reader about on how to communicate. All right? In order for us to keep this covenant, we must let the author's choice of genre determine the roles we use to understand his or her words. We read First Samuel, and there is a poem in that narrative written by Anna, Hannah. <laughs> I hear my confusing Portuguese with English. So to disregard the literary genre in the Bible is to violate our covenant with the biblical author and the Holy Spirit who inspired his message. We are constantly encountering different genres in the course of ordinary life, uh, in a single day, you might read a newspaper or look up a number in a telephone directory or order from a menu, reflect on a poem, enjoy a love letter, wade through instructions on how to get to a friend's house, or meditate on the devotional book. These are all, all things that you read, but you don't read them the same way, do you? When you meet these different genres, you know, whether you're conscious or not, that you need to play by certain rules of communication, the rules established by the genre itself. If you fail to play by its rules, you can run the risk of misreading. You know, the way that you read a recipe book is different than the way that you read an instructions manual on how to put together a piece of furniture. All right, so there is some... And I, I, my wife would, would tell me again and again that you, when, you, when you're baking, because I'm very freestyle in cooking, so when you're baking, you do have to be precise. You do have to follow the rules. So you, um, we can come in dangerous risks of uh, getting, you know, treating these type of literature in the same way. Um, so he says here, the genre, the genre game determines the rules of interpretation, just as we know that the kind of game determines the rules of, that we play by, so we know that each literary genre in the Bible comes with its own set of built-in rules of interpretation. When readers pay attention to those rules, they have a much greater chance to, of particularly of reading a passage as it was intended to be read. Genres shape our expectations on how, how to approach a particular text. The form of genre of the text really is connected to the content of the text, and for this reason, we should take literary, literary genre very seriously. The meaning of the Bible is at stake. I mean, when you uh, turn to a uh, one of the Psalms, you're not expecting to have a whole lot of history there. Right? Sometimes there would be a, a superscription in the Psalm that will tell you this happened when David committed sin with Bathsheba. This is his confession letter. But very rarely the Psalms would provide that context. We'll just say, 
a Davidic psalm, a psalm by the sons of Korah. Uh, we're going to read later today um, in our uh, worship service. All right, so the two major things that we should be looking for is the surrounding context and, um, and the literary genre. So let's first get it started with surrounding context. Surrounding context simply refers to the text that surrounds the passage that you are studying. I like the, that little video that showed, okay, you have this one verse here, there's verses before it, and there's verses um, that follows it. Um, let me skip now to the next slide. Um, all right, then there we see the circles of... Um, Oops, I think this is off. <laughs> um, there's the circles of, uh, of that surrounds the passage, right? We have the immediate context. We have the rest of a larger section. We have the rest of the book. We have the rest of the Bible. So let's take, for instance, 1 Samuel. We have the narrative of we're presently in the narrative of David. But 1 Samuel had... A section just talking about Samuel the prophets, the, their story. He had a, a section just on Saul's story, and now we're on David's story. So even within that, um, and, and then even within the, the larger context of David's story, there are different sections, right? You saw last uh, two weeks ago how chapter 25, 20, uh, 24, 25, and 26 were all connected. They all talked about vengeance and how you shouldn't avenge yourself. So it was the theme that tied them together. So immediate context circle is closest to the center, and it is de describes what comes immediately before and after a passage. The next step is learning to identify the surrounding context of your passage. Before we do that, however, we must first discuss a couple of dangers associated with disregarding the context. Here is a passage that I think most of you have come across into, I don't know, maybe a birthday card, a graduation card um, that people quoted to you, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, right? For I know what plans do I have for you, plans of, to prosper you, and, and sometimes we even quote that verse. So uh, a friend of mine seminary put together a little short video kind of explaining this verse and how people take it out of its context. All right, let's see. It's the next one there. So he has a lot of these little ones. We're going to see another one later. But um, uh, you get the point that to understand the Bible, you need to read the verses before, the verses after, and try to make sense of it. And then he even referenced different chapters on, on the prophet Jeremiah that um, kind of explained or expanded more on the concept of the new covenant, for instance. So um, the next slide there, I think I have uh, those surrounding context. Um, it is on, but I don't, it's not connected to, okay, oops. And we go back. There you go. So uh, let's take, for instance, the um, 
taking, for instance, John 3.16. It's a well-known verse, right? And it is embedded with Jesus' uh, speech in chapter, uh, in chapter 3 of John. So that is the section that we're reading. And then how the, the book has broken up the different sections of John, the Gospel of John. And the broad context then is the book of John. Now, if we expand those circles a little bit more, there is um, that within the book of John, there's the writer's similar works. So did John wrote other books in the Bible? Yes, he did. He wrote first, sec- first, second, and third John and the book of Revelation. So whenever you have a question, maybe, is this, does this word appear anywhere else in John's writing that could clue me in and on, on its meaning? Then you can look for the writer's literary corp- corpus, right? The, uh, well, actually, I just said that. Um, then the testament, the way you interpret the New Testament will be different than the way that you interpret the, the Old Testament. Why? Because we're under the New Testament, the New Covenant. Um, and so as we look to the Old, there's a still application for us but it looks a little bit different because we're not the people of Israel and we're not in the land of Israel, all right? And that, then we compare with the whole context of the Bible. Um, one important axiom that comes from this, and uh, I, I hope that you have this memorized by the time that we <laughs> we're done. A text without a context it is a pretext, all right? A text without a context is a pretext. And a lot of people, I think, they, um, at random, oh, Lord, speak to me, open their Bible, and they use, you're going to read a, an interesting example in your book there. It talks about this guy seeking wisdom if he should marry this girl or not. And he is doing exactly this, open his Bible at random. So see what happens there. Now, there are some dangers uh, of disregarding the literary context of a passage. You probably heard it said that you can make the Bible to mean anything and say anything that you wanted to say. That is true only if you disregard the literary context. When you honor this context, including the covenant of communication implicit in the genre, you cannot make the Bible say just anything. Cults are famous for scripture twisting, or most of their misreadings stem from a breach of the literary context. Just because we approach scripture as evangelical Christians does not make us immune to misinterpretations should we decide to neglect literary context. There are a number of dangers associated with disregarding literary context. Here, we will discuss two of them. And I, I I, I totally agree with our author here to say that um, we, we sometimes do that pick and choose when we're studying sometimes, right? Um, I think about counseling. I use a lot of Proverbs. <laughs> and I, I, have to make, I have to remind myself that Proverbs is wisdom literature, and they are not promises necessarily. And we're going to see an example later that people read some Proverbs and think, oh, this is a promise. This is always going to happen. No. It is as if the author is taking a picture of the moment and saying, this is true in this situation, but it might not be true at all times. So, 
The first danger involves more of a, of a, at a personal level. It, involves, it happens with individuals who focus on a single verse without paying attention to how the surrounding verses may affect its meaning. So here is one passage, uh, Revelation 3.20. I grew up with this verse, <laughs> being quoted left and right. And it's the one that uh, Jesus is saying, here I am. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Revelation 3.20 is is commonly used to describe Jesus' promise to anyone who might accept him as Savior and Lord. That is, it is seen as an evangelistic promise. If you open the door of your heart, Christ promises to enter. And I remember even quoting this as a teenager when I was evangelized. You know, just open the door of your heart and Jesus will come in. (laughs) But in context, Revelation 3.20 is a promise from the risen Christ to the congregation, the lukewarm congregation of the Laodiceans. He assures these disobedient believers that he is ready and waiting to renew fellowship with them, standing at the door knocking. If they will repent, really open that door. This verse applies directly to Christians living out fellowship with Christ. It's a verse not for unbelievers, but for believers. As a believer, have you ever strayed so far from Christ that you wondered if he would ever take you back? Revelation 3.20 is an encouragement because it promises that he loves you and he's wanting to restore the relationship with you if you repent. All right, here's another one that people misinterpret it. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. This is 2 Timothy 2.22. This is a favorite verse for uh, people struggling with sexual sin, and they think, oh, flee from the youthful lusts. Um, But how does the surrounding context define what are these evil desires of youth? Well, Paul is writing to Timothy who is facing the problem of false teachers within the leadership of the church in Ephesus. The previous unit, unity, the verses 14 to uh, 19, makes it clear that Timothy might resist, must resist the temptation of, uh, must resist the false teachers. So this is supported by an analogy from the household. So verses 20 and 21, let's read that one. 2 Timothy, and we're in chapter 2. So let's look at the preceding verses, uh, 20 and 21. It says, Now in a large house, and mind you, the context of false teachers, right? Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthware, and some to honor and some, some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vassal for honor, sanctified and useful to the masters, to the master prepared for every good work. Then now, Timothy, how are you going to be prepared for every good work? 
Flee from youthful lusts. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the name of the Lord, uh, who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And then the verses that follow helps us to even understand better. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. What is one of the major temptations with young people? Know it all. I know it all. I have an answer for that. I understand that. The Lord's bond servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all and able to teach and patient when wronged with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. So really what this, this text is about, it has very little, if anything, with sexual immorality. It has everything to do with resisting the temptation of being in arguments and, and fighting and, and arguing about issues of doctrine. It is a temptation. Um, I, I think it was a temptation for me when I was in seminary and a temptation for many seminary students where they, they, make, they were just quick. They loved to be in an argument. That is not the point of this passage, right? It is not about sexual morality. It is all about um, being able to resist the temptation of um, being like the false teachers and arguing and speculating things that the Bible doesn't say. These two examples illustrate the problem of ignoring the context that surrounds individual verses. The way our Bibles have been divided into chapters and verses doesn't help the matters much, right? So you, you, just so you know, the numbers that you have before the verses, they are not inspired. They were not part of the original text. They were just put in there to help us to, to have some sort of division. But not always those divisions were made in a way that is accurate. The chapter and verse numbers help us find passages quickly, but they can also lead us to believe that each verse stands alone as an independent unity of thought, like a number in a phone book. Just because we attach numbers to the sentences in a paragraph doesn't mean that we can rip one particular sentence out of its context and disconnect it from the, what proceeds and what follows. We also need to remember that the chapter and the verse divisions are not part of the original documents. I said, when we speak of the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, we're talking about the text itself, not about the reference numbers. So don't let that distract you from <laughs> actually understanding the, the text and its, and its um, context there. So what is another danger? This second danger that he lists there, it's uh, more um, involving those that preach and teach the Bible, right? Um, one of the dangers is uh, the uh, topical preaching, the topical preaching. As he says, topical preaching is a valid approach to preaching when the various passages are understood in context and the overall message doesn't violate those individual texts. But far too often, topical preaching distorts the meaning of scripture by disregarding the literary context. Here's how it happens, all right? 
Um, it, it, it's nothing wrong with topical preaching. I have preached before uh, a topical sermon, but you've got to be really careful because you're not using just one text, right? Um, you're moving. You, he uses here, you know, talking about, for instance, John 10, the parable of the good shepherd. And then you have one thought that you're going to take from that, and then you're going to move to the, the Lord is my shepherd psalm. Psalm 23, and you get the third thought that is on that chapter, and you try to tie in with Acts chapter 2, when it says that the Holy Spirit came to guide his people, right? So then you have the the preacher's sermon there. That's how normally it works. So you move from one thing to another to another, another passage, Um, and, and that sometimes can be a little bit dangerous. If, if you get it right, and if you bring the context of all these passages, it's great. And we had a, uh, I think we had two sermons on forgiveness, on biblical forgiveness. And I, I did go to different texts and trying to get to what, what does it really mean to forgive biblically. Um, so the diagram below shows how a biblical author thought flows through a particular text. Now, the sermons that we're used to in our church here is expository preaching, where we stick with one chapter, or like today we're in uh, chapter 27 and chapter 28 of First Samuel, um, and then you get the thought one, thought two, thought three, thought four from that chapter, and then you have John's conclusion actually is directly what the preacher is going to use on his sermon. Topical preaching, by contrast, often jumps from one passage to another, and and that is the same from jumping from the newspaper to a menu to a poem to a love letter and picking thoughts at random to construct a message of your own choosing. You can see how this approach could easily violate the literary context and lead to all sorts of conclusions. I... We're going to watch one more video here, uh, especially on, on this thought of, okay, you're just using a verse without not considering the uh, literary genre. But before we get there, actually, let's just discuss a little bit on um, when is topical preaching contextually valid? Right, have you thought about this? I mean, we're, we're so used to expository preaching. When do you think it is helpful? Seasonal, what do you you define? Okay, all right, so Kathy is using, you know, there are some seasonal sermons, uh, like Christmas or Easter service, and sometimes the pastor might use different texts to to describe the events. Yep. Yeah, if you're you're using those texts in context, Andrew is saying here, um, then that's okay. You can use multiple texts. Um, e- even within an expository sermon, we do that, right? There, there are some um, verses that connect with it. And I appreciate, I don't know if you have this in your Bible, but um, you will see cross-references to other passages that use the same language, that use, uh, or that might illustrate that principle in other texts. So... What else? 
well, just studying church history and the history of certain uh, pastors uh, preaching. Uh, probably the best topical preacher who mixed in expository components to his messages is Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon did not go verse by verse uh, through books of the Bible, uh, but Spurgeon was such a um, literary, uh, his competence in literary movement and his ability to do uh, textual analysis in a topical manner, really unmatched. Um, so Charles Spurgeon is one of those special uh, people who could take like repentance and uh, weave the um, weave it uh, in a very precise manner. So um. most of the time, uh, that skill and level of study is difficult to take. Very good. Don talked about Charles Spurgeon, if you didn't hear <laughs> him and how he did that. Um, he did a lot of topical sermons, but he did it so um, skillfully, right? considering the context and everything. I think about even of the Puritans, a lot of the books that the Puritans wrote, they were sermons that they wrote. Um, and they were, you know, might be like in one verse, they spent a whole, um, I don't know, nine yards on that one verse. So you can, uh, sometimes I, I feel like it's, it's funny when uh, um, I was at Grace Church in California and uh, MacArthur would spend so much time on one verse. And I, I thought, well, th all this detour <laughs> really is, is now a topical sermon, which is not wrong. He's, he's just bringing more insight from other texts into that one verse. So um, then what are the dangers that um, can happen? It draws you to um, expression uh, through your own lens, through mm -hmm. your mind. Even using passages rightly in a topical manner uh, might be more about how the uh, preacher is organizing the thought rather than how scripture is organizing. We need to let the text define itself, right? Um, it, there is a temptation for us to go in the direction that we already have in mind, all right? Um, I, I, I think this is one of the things that not stresses me out, but concerns me the most when I'm prepping a sermon, just to realize, okay, I, I like this verse here, this verse I'm not really sure what it means, and, um, but do I get to choose what direction the author wanted this text to go? But it goes along with uh, God is not a God of confusion. And when taking that, what you had mentioned before, that we should always think about that a text taken out of context or pretext, it creates confusion because it's taken out of context, which then gives the wrong um, interpretation, the wrong application. It's confusion. Texts that we maybe all have in our minds that we recently we actually found one in James that we didn't understand what it meant. Um, and uh, so yeah, so we, we're not to be confused people. That causes damage. These um, decisions that we would have made differently if proper uh, meaning and application were applied. People's lives, our own lives, and our lives too. So. Andrew is, is making a good point here about the confusion that it brings. 
when topical is all that the congregation hears. All right? if, if, if all that you hear are topical, is scattered verses put together like a Frankenstein, <laughs> um, it encourages people to get home and I can do the same thing. You know, I, I, I can get home and open my Bible at random or, you know, go on a rabbit trail even with cross-references and say, oh, this is connected to this, this is connected to this, connected to this. And, you know, th- there might be a connection there, but how far can you push it? So I think that there's a, a, an implication uh, on how we, we model, right, to our children when we're reading them Bible stories. And we take that out of its context, and really, it, it can mean anything that you can make it to mean. All right, I'm going to close with one last video here from the uh, word board. This is Dr. John Street's son. He comes up with his creative videos on explaining certain verses that are misused or misapplied. Um, all right, and that Proverbs 28, verse... Six is the one that we're looking at. I, I cannot emphasize <laughs> enough this verse here. Uh, many times I had parents sitting across me, brokenhearted, saying, you know, I did everything right. And Proverbs 26 says, 22 6 says that if I train up my child in the way, um, you know, in the way of the Lord, he would you know, turn up all right, and he did not. And, and I, I, you know, it, it's almost like, let me just play this video for you here, <laughs> you know, just so you, you, you can see the point of, of that passage. Um, now, can we be thankful for our parents that do that intervention, that does heed that warning and teaches the scripture? Absolutely. Can we guarantee 100% that this is going to happen? No, we can't. Um, and I appreciate that he brought the, the, you know, the surrounding verses that explain that a little bit more. And even the example in Isaiah, where the Lord, the perfect father, the perfect father, perfect parenting, and his children didn't turn out all right. All right so it, it, it is a verse of warning, um, and it can be a verse of hope if we heed that warning. So let's close in prayer. I know I had a little bit more here to, to cover, but I'll, I'll encourage you to, um, he concludes with his little study on the uh, letter to Philemon. Um, he gives one text and then expands on how you're uh, moving from this rounding context to uh, the greater, uh, the, the longer parts of a text. So three principles I'll just say here quick. Um, as you're studying the surrounding context, the verses around it, you want to identify how the book is divided into paragraphs and sections. So uh, just so you... Uh, can we go back to the presentation there? Yeah. Just so you see here, different translations will divide in different paragraphs. Right? The King James here, it's a big chunks. Some of them will be very detailed, like the NSV 1 to 3, 4 to 7... Um, and others kind of being the between the, you know, long divisions or smaller divisions. 
So that is helpful to understand the divisions in that passage. Um, then second, you want to summarize the main idea of each section. All right, so if you're thinking of that section on, on David um, and revenge, chapter 24, 25, 26 is um, talking about revenge. Then explain how your particular passage relates to the surrounding sections. So still back to for Samuel, it is uh, the chapter 24 and chapter 26 they're almost like identical, where David has an opportunity to avenge himself, but he doesn't, right? He restrains himself, but the one in the middle is David is trying to avenge himself against Nabal, and yet the Lord intervened, and, and really pointed to the centrality even in that one chapter, right, um, that the Lord intervenes um, at times to protect us from uh, going astray. All right, so these are the principles. I encourage you to, to um, do the assignment that they have there in the back. Um, you see the example of Philemon, and then he asks you to do the same thing in the book of Jonah. So I'm going to give you uh, a whole month to work on this one, okay? But uh, you want to be as thorough as you can. So that writing assignment on the book of Jonah. All right, and we have some quizzes there in the back, right, Caitlin? Um, so pick one and can bring next week, all right, where you can just do it right away. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your great mercies. Uh, thank you for uh, your precious words that encourages us, that transform us. And I pray, Lord, that you would grow us in our understanding on how we apply your words to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.